0: Chris Garlock here with this week's labor history today.
1: They were always in a um, service position. They were either <laughs> the bell ringers or the janitors, or they worked in the um, in the dining um, dining halls. There was no, there's well, we have found no indication that blacks at, at William at William and Mary after the Civil War were seen. In, in very differently than they were seen before the war except that you know the, that they were free was certainly that was accepted.
0: That's Jody Allen, assistant professor of history at the College of William and Mary and director of the Lemon Project, A Journey of Reconciliation. Jody discusses William and Mary's slaveholding past in the Genesis research and Ongoing Community Outreach of The Lemon Project with Beth English on a recent edition of the Working History Podcast. <laughs> That's a familiar sound if you've been at a union picket line or rally, as demonstrators shake soda cans filled with beans or beads. At last Thursday's rally in March through downtown D.C. by local janitors, SEIU 32 BJs Maria Naranjo reminded the crowd of the origins of these noisemakers in the Justice for Janitors campaigns of the mid-80s. I shared in Spanish the
2: little history of this noisemaker. Uh, over 25 years ago, the janitors in Washington D.C.
0: did not have union representation, and many of them hit the
1: streets because they were only making they were making less than five dollars an hour. And back then, we didn't have megaphones, we didn't have fancy you know sound systems, but we wanted to make noise. And we said, some, someone said, let's just put some, some beans or something
2: in a can and make our own homemade noise makers. So that, and it makes the sound in Spanish like ching, 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 ching. So that's why these are called chinchinas, okay? So that's the history. Well, the of the
0: Contracts covering 10,000 area union janitors expire at midnight Tuesday night and the janitors have vowed to strike if they don't win good contracts all right here's the show
2: Welcome to Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Jody Allen, Assistant Professor of History and Director of The Lemon Project, A Journey of Reconciliation at the College of William & Mary. Today we're discussing her work with The Lemon Project and William and & Mary's slaveholding past. Jody Allen, welcome to Working History. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Could you start us off by introducing us to Lemon, who is the namesake of the Lemon Project?
1: Sure. Um, Lemon was a man who was enslaved by... William and Mary at the late 18th, early 19th century. He died 1817. So we don't know a whole lot about him, but when it was time to name the project, we chose him because we did. We knew the most about him. We know mm-hmm. that he sometimes grew produce um, and sold it to the college. We know that um, at one point he was granted, he and some others were actually granted in 1808 a, uh, a Christmas bonus, they called it. Um, mm-hmm. In 1815, it, they gave him an allowance to purchase his own food. In 1816, they paid for his medicine. And in 1817, they paid for his coffin. And okay. so, um, but he certainly represents um, all of the enslaved and named and the unnamed. Um, that we're trying to come to understand at William & Mary.
2: Right. So we're going to be talking a, a bit about that uh, for, for the remainder of our time. And why don't we start off by thinking about, or maybe you could sort of fill us in on, how is it that the project started? When we talk about the history of the College of William & Mary, we're talking about sort of the entire expanse of the nation's history from the colonial period to the present, some 300 Um, The college is often referred to as the alma mater of the nation um, because of the alumni and others, you know, with connections to the college, George Washington, um, Thomas Jefferson, and so forth. But the history of the school in some ways has really only partially been told. So could you, um, you know, again, walk us through sort of what the initial genesis of an impetus was for the Lemon Project and then as part of that, I'm curious to know, did you, do you get any pushback against this work when you are, you know, talking about and really part and parcel of writing or creating a much more inclusive and honest history of the college? Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Okay. Well, the, the this started um, in 2007, the state of Virginia passed a resolution, Um acknowledging its role in slavery. Um, and that same year, the and that was actually 400 years since the, the landing at Jamestown. Mm-hmm. And so that same year, um, a student, a William & Mary undergrad, who was also a student senator on the, um, the student assembly or the student government, and she had taken some classes that kind of perked up her um interests in this question. And so Mm -hmm. she, um, as she came to learn that William and Mary had owned slaves, she um, brought a, um, with some others, brought a resolution to the the student assembly asking Mm -hmm. um, the college to study, fully study its history with slavery, make that mm-hmm. history public, and then build a memorial to the enslaved. Mm-hmm. And so that um, she was, they were able to get that, that passed at the end or the beginning of 2008. And then the following year, this the faculty passed a similar resolution saying, basically it's time for us to look at um, this part of our history. And mm-hmm. so the it was kind of like a, just the, the the timing was perfect. The president at the time was very open to it, and the provost um, was also. And so he brought in an outside faculty member, um, Bob Ings, from at that time he was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania. He was here February William and Mary for a semester, and he taught a class. But he also worked with graduate students to do. Um, research just find out what what was in the um, in the record. Was there anything that was already that had already been written about slavery at William and Mary? Mm-hmm. And at mm-hmm. that time, uh, Jennifer Ost, who was a, a, a doctoral candidate, was working on her dissertation on institutional slavery. And mm-hmm. so William and Mary was one of um, the one of the locations she was studying, and so she had come across the list of in the bursar's office records a list of the um, names of enslaved people, and mm-hmm. Lemon's name was on that list of, along with others, and so. Um, so Bob, at you know at the end of that semester and at the end of their research, wrote a uh, wrote a report to the Board of Visitors, and the Board of Visitors took that report and made a resolution that was passed in two thousand nine that caught that acknowledged that William and Mary had been a slaveholder, um, but also acknowledging that William and Mary had done nothing to challenge the the tenets of Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and established the Lemon Project. And at that time, it was supposed to be mainly a long-term research project. Mm-hmm. But one of, the, one of the other things that the uh, resolution acknowledged was that women Mary needed to do more to build a bridge between the campus and the African-American community in the greater Williamsburg area. And so one of the first decisions we made was that we could not go into the archives for eight years and come out with, hey, look what we found. And, you know, right. we needed, because we were told, literally told, when, the, when it was in the, um, uh, at the symposium where the project was announced, we had one community member stand up and say, okay, William and Mary, we're watching you. And so we needed to do, uh, we needed to begin our community engagement work at the same time we were doing Mm -hmm. the archival work and we Mm -hmm. needed to, um, you know, get, you know, talk about what we were doing, uh, why we were doing it as we were doing it. So that's, that's kind of how we you know, we got, we got started, you know, so it was a right. student, you know, a, I'd like to really, you know, put forth that it was students and and the, but the administration certainly was ready um, sure. to come to join in, so to speak and to support right. um, the project. And in terms of pushback um, there was some pushback definitely early on. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of that though came And, you know, the the wonders of the Internet have allowed for, you know, this anonymous, um, you know, feedback to to articles or what have you. So a lot of the pushback came in response to articles that were written um, at that time. And almost every time, you know, something comes out, we get a mix of um, responses. But Mm -hmm. honestly, I stopped reading those. Um, right and, <laughs> smart idea <laughs> and so it's um, the feedback has been really um, pretty good you know I know some campuses have gotten um, you know when they're that are trying to do this work have gotten very negative feedback from their alums and right. very active you know negative feedback not just right right um, comments and so So far, you know, um, and we've we've been going for about 10 years now, and we Uh haven't gotten a lot of uh, major pushback. I actually thought we might get some when when it was announced that the memorial uh, would be, you know, located somewhere Mm -hmm. on the Mm -hmm. historic campus because, you know, that's considered by some people almost holy ground.
2: Right, Um, sure.
1: But we really haven't gotten that feedback. Most people Um, all along um, have been saying, really, that's where it needs to be, you know, because that's where they lived and work.
2: That's really great. And it seems like William and Mary was one of the first colleges or universities to really begin grappling with this seriously is that right it seems to me and again you know as an alum, <laughs> maybe I'm biased but um you know, that really the you know the college has kind of been on the forefront you know leading a lot of these conversations and especially the approach that it's, conversation doesn't just end when slavery ends it's a much longer term you know through the Jim Crow period and into today you know long-term ramifications of that.
1: No, actually we are um, among the first, I mean, of course, Brown um, got the ball rolling, you know, and their their report and, and you know, came out, I think in 2005, but mm-hmm. yeah, we we are, um, there were, you know, other schools that were doing, I think there were different, you know, faculty that were doing research and that type of thing, but in terms of having, a, a you know, the, the resolution that was passed and the actual funding put behind it. You know, I'm always hesitant to say, but I think we were probably second after Brown, but I think that there, mm-hmm. you know, there were other things, other schools that were, like I said, faculty or students doing research, but in terms mm-hmm. of this le- the level of commitment um, mm-hmm. on the um, part of the institution, I think we, we're, we're definitely among the first.
2: Right, so let's talk a little bit more in detail about the college's ties to slavery and slaveholding. Uh, William and Mary was a direct participant in the slaveholding system, and what did that mean compared to other colleges and universities, like Brown, for instance, that had more indirect ties to slavery? And you know, what are we talking about when we think about the colleges that had these direct ties versus indirect ties?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, as you say, William and Mary's um, ties are quite um, intimate uh, with slavery. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the charter that was granted by King William and Queen Mary calls for the proceeds from the sale of tobacco to provide for the institution. And Mm -hmm. we know you know, who was generally growing the tobacco on their plantations at the time.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: we know that um, <clears throat> James Blair, who was the first then president for life, um, he was the, the minister who um, traveled to England to approach the king and the queen. He was a slaveholder. So, and we, we know that um, enslaved people were uh, working with, the um contractors to build the initial building, the what was at that time called the college building is now um, known as the Wren Building. The the college in 1708 was gift given a man uh, named Price. We know that in 1718, the college purchased, and we think that this may be the largest one-time purchase. 17 people, along with land, and they those people worked that land. It was a, became um, Nottaway Quarter, and it was a tobacco mm-hmm. plantation, and it was um, to provide again for the upkeep of the college, but also for scholarships for how they were referred to less wealthy white males. Um, mm. So from you know from day one, there were enslaved people there and their labor mm-hmm. provided funding. Um, mm-hmm. Also, you know, they were the people who were growing the food. So, you know, they their labor provided the food, they provided the the meals, the wood for the room, water for the students, they cleaned the rooms, a stable upkeep. They did. I mean, they were the people responsible uh, for the for for building and maintaining the college. So they were very intricately involved. Now, of course, I shouldn't say of course, but after this, after the revolution, the college, you know, of course, because England um, was uh, the funding was cut off. Uh-huh. Um, so th- there weren't as many enslaved people, although we don't have an exact number of how many there were before the revolution. We know that number was greatly reduced after the revolution. And then the school started um, hiring out some of its enslaved people and okay. also hired it hired in some people. The other thing in 1777, they by there's a, there's a record that indicates that by that point, uh, there were about 30 um, enslaved people at Nottoway Quarter, and they, okay. uh, they sold most of those people in 1777, and five or six of them were, actually, were brought to campus, but most of them were sold, again, on the eve of the Revolution.
2: Okay. And did students bring personal slaves with them to campus as well as, you know, sort of how the college were using enslaved individuals?
1: Yes, there were there were some um, who did. They could pay. I believe it was eight pounds um, mm-hmm. to, to, but because they said they had to pay a fee. But there were some, and we uh, we don't. It's hard again to know exactly how many. Mm-hmm. We found one place in the record um, when we know two um, brought. But, you know, the unfortunate thing is, as you say, as an alum, you know, the red building burned three times. Right. So a lot. There go lot, the records. There right? go records, yeah. right. You know, <laughs> so we are piecing together this story. But so we know there were probably more that brought them. But we know that it, because that, that we know that there was provision for that uh, okay. for them to do that. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. And do we have any estimates or do you have any estimates I should say about how much financially speaking during this pre pre-civil War period the college benefited from this
1: work of enslaved men and women? We don't have a, n- a number that is our report just came out um, about a month or so ago formally and one of that's one of the, our next, Big projects is I want to try mm-hmm. to work with someone in the school of business, uh, you know, someone who knows how to do that math, you know, and, right. and translate 18th and 19th century financial figures into 20th century so we can get a better handle. So that's mm-hmm. that's one of the next big things where we're Looking at, but again, we know that they they did provide, they worked to provide financial aid. I'm hoping, you know, that we'll be able to at least figure out some of those people who received financial aid mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in in that way. Um, but we know again, it said that they were there throughout, you know. Right. So they, we know that the college benefited. We just have to figure out what that number might look like.
2: Do you have anything you could share with us in terms of how the debates about slavery that sees the country at various points in time, especially in the lead up to the Civil War, played out or had any kind of particular resonance at the college? Or, you know, was it more that the college was sort of in its little bubble and those, those kinds of larger national debates didn't have any
1: particular resonance? Right. No, actually, William and Mary was among the leaders of pro-slavery thought. Um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) um, Partially now. Now there there were periods where um, uh, people who who may have had some question, you know, about slavery, they. Um generally though they did not sell their slaves. <laughs> and so <laughs> but we know um Thomas Thomas Dew, who was uh he grew up um part of a wealthy slaveholding family in the Tidewater area. He attended uh William and Mary as an undergrad and he uh, got a master's degree at William and Mary. He left uh, for a while and traveled Europe to kind of, I guess, round out his um, education and uh, for health reasons, but he came back to William and Mary. He was hired in 1826 as a history professor.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so he was there, he was back in Virginia at the time of Nat um, Turner's rebellion. Okay. And so Virginia, the Virginia General Assembly, um, debated for 13 days in uh, January 1830 two following the insurrection that previous August. Um, And because people were afraid, you know, Mm -hmm. Matt Turner, Mm -hmm. it wasn't just it wasn't a thwarted rebellion, you know, he killed people, you know, Mm -hmm. and they, you know, so people all over the South, but in particular in Virginia were really afraid of what was going to happen. You know, they had this population of people living amongst them and, you know, they, while I think, for a long time, they were able to convince themselves that they were happy, but, they, you know, they, they knew, I think, all along they weren't happy. And certainly this rebellion, you know, um, was a great indication of their unhappiness. And mm-hmm. so they debated for 13 days about what to do about slavery in Virginia. And what they came up with um, was that there was, they had to, you know, stick with the status quo um, because Mm -hmm. if they freed them, they had to pay property owners. And so that was one, that was going to be one cost. And then they, they felt, that they could not live that blacks and whites could not live together so then Mm -hmm. they would have to pay to relocate them somewhere Mm. and so it just was not financially feasible for the state plus they were needed you know that that labor was needed there were people in the western part of the state where slavery wasn't as, as great a stronghold Mm-hmm. Um, they were much more interested in ending slavery than folks in the, the Eastern region or whatever. And so <laughs> anyway, um, after uh, do followed the debates, um, which were very public in terms of a newspaper and, and, and all of that. And so he wrote a response to the, de- um, to the debates and he outlined in his response Why slavery was the greater good for all involved. That that Mm -hmm. that enslaved people needed the structure of the institution if they were ever going to become civilized. And he explained; he um, gave biblical um, support for slavery, saying that one, slavery had existed in every civilization throughout civilization. Every Mm -hmm. every great civilization had begun with slavery. Also, that there was no reason for Christians to fear God's wrath because they were indeed doing what God wanted them to do and, and, and by holding these slaves. And then he also blamed, he said, well, and besides God won't hold it against you because the English brought slavery here and now we have to live with it. We have to make the best <laughs> of a bad situation. And so, and because of that, we can't get rid of them. God understands that we're good. And so basically what he did was he gave more uh, intellectual or Mm academics support for the decision they had already made. Right. So he and William and Mary become the leaders among this pro you know this pro-slavery ideology right well he, he will become the president in 1836 and then he dies in 1846 and so mm-hmm. but there were nathaniel beverly tucker was another william mary professor who uh, who was a pro-slavery ideologue and mm-hmm. and so and and, and they and they were certainly throughout the south you know the um, mm-hmm. folks and so and there were students we've come across Some um, student di well one in particular student diary where he is also talking about um, you know he's pro slavery and he's talking you know talking about that so yeah William and Mary was among the leaders in um, terms of this um, this idea of slavery being a positive good.
2: Mm -hmm. And sort of rationalizing the system in this bigger conversation. So let's fast forward a little bit to, you know, post-Civil War. And as you mentioned, um, the college was really in many ways complicit in the maintenance and perpetuation of Jim Crow in the South, or at least in, you know, in the Williamsburg area. So could you talk just a little bit about the college and Jim Crow of what the relationship was between the college and African-Americans in Williamsburg and the wider Tidewater region in this era? Yeah.
1: You know, there's some interesting stories about, you know, Blacks with shortly after the school opens, you know, opens back up. But they were always in a um, serv- uh, service position. They were either mm-hmm. the bell ringers or the janitors, and, or work, or they worked in the um, in the dining um, dining halls. There was no there's well, we have found no indication that blacks at, at William at William and Mary after the Civil War were seen in very differently than they were seen before the war. Except that you know that, that they were free was certainly that was accepted. But mm-hmm. in terms of again, what their roles were, they really didn't change a whole lot. At mm-hmm. all, um, mm-hmm. one of the um, interesting things that we that we've come across as as we've done to, done some oral histories and talked to um, individuals um, either who, who worked at William and Mary at one point or who just are longtime Williamsburg residents, they there's definitely a feeling of not um, not being welcome on the mm-hmm. campus and there mm-hmm. I've heard several people have said um that you know they were not welcome on campus unless they were pushing a broom. Mm. Um and there there is a you know I not having um been you know not having grown up in, in Williamsburg you know I had never it had never focused on me that there is a literal mm-hmm. wall around the old campus oh, and yeah. It's and and that's I you know I guess I in the in the I guess I just thought of it as part of the decoration, but people mm-hmm. who live there and experience Jim Crow there see that as a real boundary. Mm-hmm. You know that they were not welcome beyond that wall, and right. and so there's also you know I've um, I still hear stories about um, guidance some guidance counselors today saying to black students, well, you know, William and Mary is a good school, but I'm not sure you'll be comfortable there. Oh, you know? Interesting. Um, and so I know when I was accepted in 1995, because um, I grew up in Hampton, you know, so which uh-huh. is 30 minutes away, Sure. and right. you know, I, when, and of course, you know, as parents do, my parents told everybody, and <laughs> and and the constant, the, the consistent message that I that they that people sent me was, tell Jody congratulations, but tell her to be careful. Wow. And that was 1995. (laughs) Right. So,
2: And that sort of leads into my next question then. What have the ripple effects of this been into the present? I mean, 95 was not so long ago. Mm -mm. Um, And, you know, so how, you know, what are the ripple effects? And then, you know, how is the Lemon Project grappling with this piece of the college has passed as well as its ties to slavery? Mm -hmm. Well,
1: um, because we're we're dealing with basically a a cultural memory, right? A strong Mm -hmm. cultural Mm -hmm. memory that has been passed down because nothing happened to me and to my knowledge, anybody in my family directly related to William and Mary. But these are stories that were passed down that people knew or ex- heard or experienced themselves and so that's one of the things we're trying to address so right away you know we we went into we started going into the community um, right. for events and there's a um, the the former um, African-American school um, there, the Bruton Heights School, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is now owned by Colonial Williamsburg but you can still reserve or at least a few years ago you could still reserve. Um, space for meetings or events, and so mm-hmm. our first three we um, we decided um, to have that we needed to have a symposium every year to talk mm-hmm. to share publicly um, what we were finding, but also to ha- set up panels, um, discussions um, to get pe- feedback and, and, and this type of thing. And so we started that first. The first three symposia were in the Bruton Heights School because mm-hmm. that was very key to the Black community. It was where um, the Rockefellers helped to, to, to build the building. And it was, at the time, it was state-of-the-art. It was where not only were they educated, it was where the um, during World War II, the USO was held there. They held the movies uh, in the community because they could not go to the um, movies on Duke of Gloucester Street, to the movie theater, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's where their parties were held so it was very and, and, and when uh, they were it was being considered that they would they would be torn down and a parking lot would be um, would be built the black community in Williamsburg came together and and basically saved it and so right. that's it's central to the community mm-hmm. so we went there and we mm-hmm. and we kept going there until we outgrew it um and then we we came on campus but um, I'm really happy to say that the community followed us to campus.
2: And that's great. Um,
1: yeah. And so, but we we, we are working, um, we, we've had events in some of the churches. Uh, there are um, community members on our advisory team, our advisory board, rather. Um, and so that's a, a key part of what we do. It's, I think is as important as whatever we find and whatever we're doing in the archive is that we communicate um, to people by our actions that William and Mary is sincere about what it's mm-hmm. doing. It mm-hmm. understands, it has a lot to overcome. And uh, in terms of the the feeling of the co- the community, um, but that, so that's, that's really um, a major part of our, our focus is our community engagement piece. And so we're mm-hmm. You know, that's how we're working with, you know, trying to overcome this 326 year history, you know, and it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, there's still, I think there, like I said, we still have uh, probably our largest constituency at our campus events um, is made up of people in the community. They come to campus, but we're still, but there's still people who, you know, feel we could do more you know, and, right. and we are, you know, constantly working to do more. I will say that uh, for several years, I was the only full-time person. And then there were two graduate students. Mm-hmm. And now we have, um, there's a full-time administrative this was our. This is our first year of um, a post. We have a postdoc and we have mm-hmm. two graduate assistants, and so mm-hmm. which is make which is um, also will enable us to reach further and maybe do right. do, do more. But um, mm-hmm. when we're invited, uh, we go to community organizations and we talk about the Women Project and. William and Mary's history and and what we're trying to you know trying to do we we've had um, community uh, folks who because you know William, Williamsburg has a great re, uh, retirement community mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so we had one of our um, re, reports that's on our website uh, was a, a a woman who came who was a, a re, retired professor from Columbia Teachers College she mm-hmm. came to a symposium. Got very interested and asked how, what she could do. At the, around the same time, you know, I was doing these oral histories and coming across some really interesting stories that I wanted to look further into. So she mm-hmm. did that, you know. Okay. So mm-hmm. you know, so in that and so we we're we're using we're trying to use all of our resources because again, not only do we want to know as much as we can, we also want to because you should not live, you know, in a college town. And not feel like you can benefit from that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that uh, proximity and, and, and all of the college has to offer. And so that's right. something we're working constantly on. Okay. So
2: uh, just before we wrapped up shifting gears just a tiny bit, um, are there any projects that you, Jody Allen Scholar, are working on that we might want to keep our eye out for?
1: <laughs> I well, I, I, have, I had an article that came out last summer about Thomas Dew and pro-slavery thought. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I came across in this diary he kept when he was in going through Europe was his interaction with this uh, Black woman who was in exile from Haiti. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated by that. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of one of the things I'm doing that's related to the lemon. That's related to the the lemon project. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also um, looking at one of our holes is fully understanding the post-war period up until the mm-hmm. the turn of the um, 20th century. And so mm-hmm. I'm dabbling in that too. But my actual the, the manuscript I'm working on is actually coming out of my dissertation which is not related to women it's more related Mm -hmm. to um, the disfranchising of blacks the the, the, in virginia the the general assembly passed the constitution in 1902 like other like other states in the confederacy Mm -hmm. that disfranchised um most black men and so Mm -hmm. that's my big project right now so it's it's not directly Lemon-related, but it's it's still part of the African American Part of that story. conversation. Right. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah absolutely. Well, Jodi, um, congratulations on all the work that you and your team and volunteers and the community have done with the Lemon Project. And um, thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. And you. Okay.
2: Thanks again to Jody Allen for joining us today to discuss The Lemon Project, A Journey of Reconciliation at the College of William and Mary. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.
0: That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app, where you can also subscribe to the always excellent Working History Podcast. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history.